You're listening to Dole Capital, and on this episode, you're with Ben. We're broadcasting from the mean streets of Canberra, Australia, adding our unasked for socialist insights and solidarity with working people and the poor fighting capitalism from Belgium to Belconnen. On today's show, it's been 12 months since our man in Belgium came in from the cold, and we're really glad to have him back to talk about what the hell's been going on with the Australian Federal Labor Party government and what is to be done. Just like we like talking about. Welcome back, Matthew Byrne. How are you going there, mate? Good, mate. It's lovely to be uh, sitting right next to you for a change. Yeah, which is excellent. So, but first, a couple of things we need to get out of the way. Patreon, this show would not be possible without our patrons and supporters. You can show your solidarity at patreon.com forward slash dollcapital. That's D-O-H-K-A-P-T-K-A-P-I-T-A-L. Please like, share, and subscribe to our show and leave a review on your preferred podcast application. We are now also available on Spotify. A big thank you to our supporters who have helped us with our broadcast hosting fees and equipment. Your support helps motivate and resource us to make more content. We've saved our um, our ill-gotten donations over the last couple of years and have been able to recently upgrade our laptop to, to uh, better create and promote the show. So next single thing before we get going, we're recording on Ngunnawal land and pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and future, whose sovereignty was never ceded, and who we express our solidarity with continuing struggles to end uh, injustices for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. On today's show, Matthew Byrne, if you haven't heard of him on a previous, well, you haven't heard him speak on a previous episode, he has been on quite a few of them, is a tremendous sharp mind for socialist politics and Australian labour and beyond. He was Secretary of the ACT branch of the ALP for over five years, where there was big inroads made into making ACT Labor more democratic, accessible, and community came focused. The success of his tenure in leadership during the 2016 ACT election saw the Labor Party return to ACT government and a growth of membership to the thousands when he left. Uh, something like up to one in 100 electors at one point were members of the ACT Labor Party. I'm not sure if we're still that healthy now, but who knows? Well, uh, that's not really Matt's problem anymore. Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. So, look, what's what's happening? You, you've come in. You've, you know, we're debriefing <laughs> you from your yeah, secret right. mission. That's right. No, visiting uh, friends and family uh, for a couple of weeks uh, in, in Australia um, and just fortunate that it's timed well with... Um, the first year of the the since the election of the Albanese government, um, yeah. So it's nice to catch up and have a bit of a chat. No, that's great. Well, look, there's a couple of things that've been going on. We did mention this on offline. Interesting development in the ACT is that comments who are familiar with this show, um, we've had some great news. Uh, comments who often support this show are also people who have been supporting the campaign for the introduction of a four day work week or a thirty two hour week, uh, no loss of pay type gig. Well. Our moves have given some fruits with the actual proposal being put to the ACT Labor Conference, uh, which is coming up in July, and we hope it will become part of the ACT Labor government's platform or the platform of the party to, to then be uh, enacted by the ACT Labor-led government. So great stuff there from uh, comrades locally doing that. And um, 
really wonderful to see some of those things happen, particularly with people who are supporters of the show. So, um, yeah, good. Any thoughts on that one, Matt? No, I just think it's 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 always it's one of the nice things about the ACT Labor Party is that members can pick up an issue, um, try and improve the life of working people, drive it through the party and the movement, uh, and have some success. You know, I think it's it's one of the hallmarks of our democratic um, culture, our democratic structures that that can that that can take place. Um, I certainly hope that it provides an example for um, comrades in the ALP and, and in other um, in other political institutions around the country that um, there's really nothing stopping them from from trying to bowl the ball up and and, and make change happen. Um, hopefully, uh, if it gets up in the in the platform, then uh, comrades can campaign uh, further in the party to see its implementation. But no, good on them, and it's really good to see. Well, it's been a year since you've been in Australia, and I guess what we've got, especially quite well timed uh, in terms of your visit, uh, Matt, is that we've had a year of the Albanese-led Parliamentary Labor Party. Uh, there's, like, I guess, we want to talk about what's what's good and the good and the bad. Um, what what are, what are a couple of things that you think are, are the good in terms of what we've seen in the last twelve months? Yeah, well, I think I think what's good is is. Uh... Certainly, in industrial relations reform, I think a move towards multiple, multiple employer bargaining um, ha- has been a tremendous shift. Um, I think it was really um, it was clever of the of the new government to to bring um, capital and labour together um, and work through some of the issues, but then remind everyone that they were elected on a on a platform of of bringing back in um, multi employer bargaining, um, and they stared them down and and they got it done. So kudos to that. Um, I think the changes to to Medicare, um, changes to the pharmacy uh, scheme, um, the pay rise for aged care workers, um, the government um, basically getting out of the way of, of, of the fight for uh, wage increases um, have all been positives. Um, I think the big um, positive that hasn't really been um, recognised, I think, across mainstream is just how much more um, women-friendly and 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 focused on on improving the lives of of women in Australia. This this government has been. I think the parents next getting rid of that, bringing the age up to fourteen. I know there's still work to go to sixteen, but you know it's it's it is really fantastic to see. It, it shows the government is is not just paying lip service to more than half the country, which uh, it is pretty incredible to say that because really ought not be the case. But for far too long, I think women have had to take a back seat and. You know, I think it's it's really been uh, the hallmark of 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 this of this first year in in government. Um, additionally, moves on climate change, uh, so much more work to be done there. I think, but um, to have a to have a climate change policy enacted is a is a small you know a small step towards um, tackling a gigantic. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on a number of the key things for me that have been a definitely a noticeable improvement. I think in particularly that the changes of industrial relations, I think, are something that's going to be felt into the future, which is awesome in terms of actually enabling unions to negotiate across an industry is going to be incredibly significant to actually alleviate uh, the continued sort of push down of wages in Australia over the last, well, since going back to 1996 when the Howland government got in. And I think that, um, like you're talking about the parents' net next thing, like I, I don't think a lot of people, some people have honed in on it but the fact that it's the first time that we've had a government in the last 40 odd years that hasn't accepted hook line and sinker this idea that we need to hit um the poor and 
vulnerable people with a mutual obligation activity, uh, you know, some sort of degrading activity. Uh, onerous, more often than not, actually putting the sort of take the benefits off them as opposed to supporting them. Uh, getting rid of that, yeah, lots of trips, lots of trips for them to, to trip over. Uh, on, on people that needed help. So that is really a significant win there. And I think that's something we want to see built on and something to include other benefits that are currently provided uh, for people that are uh, doing it tough, people who are on job seeker, young people and the unemployed and the like. The actual, the idea of mutual obligation is, is actually being taken on, which is a really positive thing. The other, the other stuff I guess has been really positive, I think for me, just building on what you're saying there, the significant reinvestment in Medicare is uh, it has been frustrating. Some left commentators, I think, undersell it too much, um, and I think it's uh, to their detriment. I think it needs to be acknowledged, and not just acknowledged, it needs to be applauded. That's the first time in a very, very long time in, in decades that we've actually had a federal government inject a lot of money back into our universal healthcare system, which for decades there was basically a unity ticket between the Liberal National Party governments and the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party, where there was kind of this idea of like, we'll provide the base minimum, but we're just going to continue to run it down while handing out billions of dollars to the private health sector. And that there was a unity ticket, no doubting uh, with that. So it's a significant uh, shift away with that one. And that's, I think, needs to be recognized and applauded. Yes, there needs to be more done, but um, we've gone from a uh, situation where bulk billing was going to fall over for our international listeners. That's where a punter can turn up to a doctor and not actually have to pay to go to the doctor. However, for decades, they've degraded that and people have had to pay what was called a gap. And that gap can be anywhere between $50 to $100 to a, to a general practitioner. And, uh, you know, very expensive for people who don't have money. So um, it's significant. A lot of people will benefit from that one. That's right. The, the change has been that from 1 November, the amount of money the government pays GPs if they choose to bulk bill has been tripled to $20.65 instead of $6.85. So I have heard some people on the on the left uh, cherry pick um, some of the funding that's gone towards uh, helping older people um, and people in different circumstances to get bulk billing. But this is a universal rise in, in, in bulk billing funding. Um, and I think considering... I think we may talk about this a bit more, that many of the things that the government are trying to do um, is effectively undoing an inheritance from the Howard. You know, that the Howard government has been um, attacked um, Medicare and the whole basis of Medicare um, from 1996 until they lost government in 2007. And then we had a, a Labor government from 2007 to 2013 that, that had the, you know, the eyes on the prize and, and was committed to, to doing a lot of things, but ended up... Um, as we all know through history, completely divided um, and a bit of a mess. Um, and you couple that with the GFC, weren't able to actually get in and get stuck in and actually fix many of the problems that were done. Mm. And then we've had obviously the the, the crazy uh, chaotic uh, cronies um, from the Abbott, Turnbull, uh, Morrison years. So um, the I think the task in front of uh, everyone from the, the very middle of the ALP all the way up to to the to the to the socialist left uh, is huge. Uh, if we want to actually improve um, the situation for working people, I think we need to to contextualise the challenge uh, and understand how long it's actually going to take to do that. Absolutely. I, the other one I wanted to add in in terms of a positive um, and and also a, I guess a, look an indication that the the government is actually bringing some changes about, which we think we need to acknowledge and you know commend is taking on the pharmacy guild 
uh, which is you know quite incredible. No one's no one's no government has done that for a very long time. In Australia, how that works is while we have a pharmaceutical benefits scheme, uh, which means that medications become a lot cheaper, they're subsidised by the government. What we have is a situation where pharmacies, or normally um, these small business pharmacy operations, you, you can have a, a pharmacy guild member who might even own 11 of such pharmacies. But basically what happens with that is they are able to pocket a gap between uh, what the government provides for a medication, by understanding, and then what actually gets charged to the punter. So it's worth a lot of money to the, uh, to the, the, to the pharmacists as well as there are all sorts of restrictions that are placed on, I guess, the ability for others to provide basic medications in the commercial sector. Um, has also been something that's been, you know, a, a big problem in Australia. Um, and part of the challenging, I guess, the, the power of the Pharmacy Guild has been, will be enabling people who are on a medication, say if you're taking uh, cholesterol tablets, yeah, instead of just having to get a script once, you know, every month, that you would be actually be able to get yourself a script for two months, and right. you'll only get and charged. That's, and that's what they're kicking for, out the stink about. Yeah, 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 you'll get charged for one month's worth of um, medication as opposed to two months worth of medication, and that's, you know, that's commendable that they actually have been having a having a go at that. So look, kudos to Butler's. Um, that's um, Mark Butler's office, uh, who's the health minister, um, and as well as for aging. And I just wanted to segue then again to another significant one, which has to be acknowledged, and we did mention at last. Uh, on the last Beno's brief uh, at Dole Capital, the massive increase in wages that's to be funded to aged care mm -hmm. and disability workers, mm -hmm. uh, which has come off the back of some decades of campaigning by workers in those sectors and their allies to actually see more respect and recognition for the qualifications and the, the work that goes into looking our most, uh, after our most vulnerable. So a 15% fully funded wage rises in that sector. Um, all good. So look, I, I think that is a good thing. So we, we anyway, we're good good stuff because we're not just going to go, you know, it's terrible. We don't want to do that, but we're trying to be balanced about it because there's certainly a lot of other things that we think need to be done better and how we, one should go about it. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, look, I think I think that's probably right. Yeah, absolutely. So look, um, the last one, I guess, is TAFE mm. for me, mm. um, which has been interesting because uh, broadly speaking, for higher education, it was kind of very quite disappointing that there was not very much at all uh, in the way of uh, increased funding um, directly towards the higher education sector. But there also is that, that general problem that since they deregulated higher education generally, and I'm, I'm including universities as well as TAFEs in this, that there's kind of been a, a very strange uh, and reluctance to actually challenge the concept that the market shouldn't be involved in in, in higher education. And that is something that's, you know, a leftover legacy that we need to continue the challenge um, that's been left over from the Howard years, as you, as you pointed out. It's all very well, the Albanese government um, bragging about 30,000 free TAFE spots. But the question it really needs to be made is like, well, why isn't all free in, in TAFE? If we've acknowledged that you need to actually provide training for people to go and, um, you know, get particular jobs and all the rest of it, why isn't all free? Why aren't the real users um, paying paying for education through taxation and the like. That's right. And I think we also have to recognise that TAFE is something that's run predominantly through the states. So um, I guess the question there is why aren't the states stepping up uh, and trying to um, come to some kind of an agreement with with uh, federal labour in trying to give it, universalise most of, um, of, of TAFE education? We now have labour governments across Australia except Tasmania 
um, so now's the time. Yep. I think, and if, if people have a, a particular bent on trying to make TAFE um, universal uh, and free to people who want to use it, uh, then I reckon now is the time to try and fight for that change. Yeah, yeah. What, what I wanted to touch on, Matt, was what's pretty obvious, and I understand there was a little lot, quite a bit of anger amongst a significant minority, and I mean significant. We're talking there's quite a lot of people in this space they're they're not um they're not boomers they're not even exigents necessarily like there are people probably you know under 50 uh your millennials and and um and, and zeds who are basically going it's not enough uh they, i understand their i mean their frustration they're coming from it in terms of like is there enough to actually deal with the climate disaster the climate emergency that is happening and is unfolding before our very eyes every year in australia we sort of keep thinking like what is winter going to bring this year you know um what is summer going to bring this year? And those things like you know, the, the optics of Tanya Klippersek approving a new coal mine, for example. Yeah, good stuff. Um, or you've got the anger that we've had in terms of like, yes, increasing uh, job seeker by $20 a week, uh, but still absolutely going nowhere in terms of the Henderson poverty line mm. for, um, for people on, on benefits. And then we have this continuing and yawning gap in Australia since uh, the late, you know, well, since the, since the early 90s between the rich and the poor. Um, it's not all roses, obviously, is it? No. Right? And it, a lot of it, I think it's a fair enough critique to say it doesn't go far enough. What, what, are, you, what are your thoughts on this area? Oh, I, I, I agree. I think that, that um, working people are doing it extremely hard, um, that they're, they're being crunched on a whole, on a whole series of fronts, um, whether it's housing, the inability to purchase a home, uh, squeezed on rents, um, squeezed on bills, um, squeezed on groceries, um, you name it, really. Uh, there isn't an area um, of people's lives that hasn't been squeezed by this um, pretty significant cost of living crisis. So um, the, the critique that um, people are falling behind um, and government uh, has yet to provide a safety net for them um, a proper one in order to get people back on their feet and, and living a, a life that is um, that is fulsome um, and and to their best, uh, I think is is absolutely right. I think that there are challenges there for us on the left who want to who want to make interventions and try and and, and push um, the new government um, to check to make uh, significant changes. I mean, we've also seen in just the last hour that the Fair Work Commission has decided to lift the minimum wage by 5.75%, which is, you know, 1.25% below inflation, which is still at 7%. So, you know, it's 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 a significant rise when you look at some of the yeah. um the 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 union negotiations that are going around and what they're being offered, which is below that. But still I think um it it's it's probably, you know, arguably it's not good enough that it's not keeping up with inflation. Mm. Um and I think that that's just going to compound people's problems. So yes, I think that is that is absolutely right that people are feeling the heat um, of this of this cost of living crisis. And I think though we have to be careful on the left about how we engage with that. Um, I've seen obviously plenty of people on on Twitter um, and and out there basically lambasting everything that's happened um, as not being good enough. This is the government's um, uh, technically second budget um, in a year. And what they've delivered uh, clearly doesn't make significant inroads into into fixing uh, this this cost of living crisis. Now, I think what we are lacking is a is an understanding about just how poor um, how poorly resourced the Australian public service is, 
um, they are basically on their asses, I think, as an institution. Um, we've inherited a, um, a public service that has been cut, uh, gutted, um, has had their um, horizon significantly lowered, has been cowered pretty much since the Howard years in the mid-1990s. Um, there was a short uh, period of Labor government, as we said earlier, um, in the early 2000s, but that was just not long enough to really fix the, the problem. And things only got much, much worse under the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison um, years. So um, there is an almighty task to be done to rebuild the capacity of government, because in my view, government can't even deliver the basics of what government should be delivering let alone meet the challenges that people expect government to make. And I think there is a job there for the government to contextualise to that people and show them how they're going to do that. How are they going to, you know, resource the public service to the point where it can actually meet people's needs? Um, because if they don't do that, they risk um, the, the criticisms that are, that are currently out there um, being taken on by people and they'll face a backlash. Yeah. I think that point about... Um... What's being offered at times, it's like it's a significant. So that, that wage outcome, I mean, good work looking over that straight away. We got it here. It's a dull, you know, it's hot off the press, 5.75 increase to the award wages. So for our international uh, listeners, that's the Australia has a um, normally an independent process in terms of setting wages, the minimum wage uh, and the like, where both employer groups and the unions and, and others put in their submissions for it. And normally that um, that figure is then passed on to a minimum um, minimum arrangements for workers. So that's a significant increase. But uh, as you as you're mentioning there, Matt, doesn't go 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 far enough. But I guess I mean what you seem to be really hitting on the on the head there that there's a unique opportunity. Like so, for on the one hand there is significant anger and um, not disillusionment yet, but I think there's significant anger and and I think enthusiasm for more to be done. But there is that danger uh, that is there that if the if the federal the PLP doesn't actually continue to provide um, solutions and and they, then they don't continue to provide you know examples of how they're actually going ahead with things uh, we we are they going to there is going to be a problem and we could ever see we could see a vacuum being created further to left and a vacuum being created to the right I don't have a problem with a vacuum being created by left but I think unfortunately particularly in Australian society, that vacuum, more often or not, we have lots of problems with it being filled by a right-wing space as opposed to an organised left space. Uh, we don't have uh, counterbalances like the old Communist Party of Australia, which was a, an interesting counterbalance in uh, the, well, post-First World War all the way through up to the, um, to the 1970s. They, they don't exist anymore. Uh, and the left is very disparate and not very well connected and seems to spend a lot more time I don't know, just either uh, being rather tribal in its activities. So my, my, I think there is an opportunity there for the, the broad left, and I'm talking about people in the Greens and people in Labor to actually try to fight for more from the PLP, but hopefully doing it in a, in a smart way, uh, getting uniting around particular issues that they all care about, we all agree on, and getting on with that and encouraging and supporting each other uh, when people are you know, doing activities and the like is, I guess, my take on it. What are your thoughts? I mean, like, we've got, I saw something to this morning. It was really interesting for me. There was a person, Alastair Laurie, who I remember from uni. Um, he used to be a Labor guy back in the day and Democrats and all the rest of it. 
wrote, wrote this piece basically not particularly happy with uh, the draft platform that Labor's putting up around LGBTQ rights. Mm. And it was interesting what one one uh, one person putting out quite a scathing sort of, you know, assessment of it, all the rest of it. But when you go back and say like, well, conference season's coming up, like you've got state branches going to have their conferences. I know we've got an ACT one. Maybe they might do that in Victoria and New South. I don't know. But either way, there's forums and the like where Labor Party members get to go and apply pressure. There's going to be a national conference. People are actually going to be applying pressure on the obviously change these things that, that people in, the, in that community are like not happy with, yeah? yeah? But it is interesting that you get this sort of misrepresentation of like, oh, their draft thing is terrible and it's like, you know, they're all they're all awful and why, why aren't Labor activists, you know, making more noise about why this is terrible? It's like, well, this is, there's a disconnect between I agree with why you're upset about it, but how do you go about getting that change? Well, you support the people who also think it's not good enough, who happen to be in Labor, and try to get them to apply pressure to their organisation to change it. That's well. No, you raise you raise a really valid um, a really valid case, and you see it. We're seeing it quite often since since the election of the government. I think it took didn't take people very long to um to to call out the great call of betrayal, um, which I think is inevitable in some sectarian parts of of the left. Um, but on on onto the national um conference side of things before we pivot to to broader um issues in 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 the in the left generally you know the process for the national conference um which happens every three years in in the in the labor party nationally is that um a committee is elected which represents a third members a third unions and a third of the parliamentary party they then spend a good couple of years traveling around the country uh consulting with branches with affiliates with you know the parliamentary ring of the labor party with um, organisations and, and people outside, you know, whether that's faith groups, whether that's NGOs, not-for-profits, campaigning organisations, you know, policy institutions, civil society, and obviously business as well. I, in, in a previous life, um, worked uh, for the National Office of the ALP, and I helped uh, oversee that process twice um, in 2008 and 2011. So it is an in-depth process. And it, it usually um, involves um, taking a lot of submissions on board and then there's a draft. Now, it does the drafting process varies depending on the nature of the leader's office, um, the intent of what the document should be, whether it's going to be a smaller document or a bigger document, whether it's going to lay the foundations for, you know, for the long term or whether it's more of a medium term um, document. So taking into those, taking those things into account, you, you draft a, a document you know, informed by the last platform um, and informed by what has been submitted, um, and then it's put out for consultation. There's a second round, right? Um, and it looks like this is where where we are at. We're at it. We're we're in a position where some text. I'm not I'm not entirely sure whether the full draft has been released or not. That's my bad. I don't know that, but um, certainly some text is clearly getting around, and people uh, are rightly using their voice to to put up, you know, where where it's it's missing or where it's not doing a good enough job. That is the process working. That's how the process is supposed to work. You try and get to as good a position as you can with the draft so that when it gets to conference, people are dealing with the pointy issues for the three days that the national conference is held. They're not dealing with shit that really should have been dealt with earlier. So I think it's good that Alistair um, has identified these problems. It would it would seem to me um, common sense that the party would then, you know, make some some changes to try and 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 improve the document before it goes to conference itself. So we'll see what happens, and if not, then it's up to um, 
people in rainbow labor, people in the LGBTIQ and queer um, movements to to ratchet up the pressure. Because uh, if, if you've never been to a national conference, it's a giant gathering. There's 400 delegates. Anyone who wants to, who's involved in the ALP can go and observe. It's usually a, an opportunity for the broader left to converge uh, together. Um, there's various fringe programs on as well. So there are plenty of opportunities to put pressure on the on the Labor Party to make changes to their platform if people think it's not good enough. Yeah, and I, I think that's important to sort of point out that process there, Matt, because I, I think there's one of the things that seems to be lacking in our political discourse in Australia, and it's something that drives me nuts when I'm looking at our Twitter feed for Dole Capital, that's just at Dole Capital people, uh, interacting with other leftists who seem to have this really strange 90s or even 80s view that that literally the Labor Party is North Korea, that the federal, uh, Albanese is, you know, he's the great leader and that we all blindly follow. And it's very, very strange. Don't actually get, like, as you've just highlighted there, we're talking about an organization that's federated, it's state-based, the power is in the states, and that at those states, that's where those delegates are then elected to then go to the federal conference. And what you're going to have as a federation is you're going to have a debate and discussion, but you're going to have deals will be done and pressure will be applied for particular positions to be made. So the whole point, what you're highlighting there is that as we're fond of saying, like being in the Labor Party is just a side of struggle. It's an important side of side of struggle um, for, I guess, in some ways it's not, you know, we can argue whether or not it's the side of struggle, but honestly, it is one of the most important areas of struggle probably in Australia today. So just writing it off or misrepresenting how labor activists actually work inside their organization as like, mm. uh, it's kind of weird. It's kind of like they win on the one hand by basically making noises that, oh, well, you're not making enough, enough noise about this issue, but then presenting it, it's like, oh, it's a done deal. So it's it's a very strange um, situation where you find this, it's almost like a willful ignorance about how, how it actually works. Whereas, you know, we know as, as, as activists that have been around, like, Left groups, the Greens have all got their own problems and their own interesting ways to make decision making. No one's perfect, but this is actually a quite a formalised process uh, structure that happens in labour, and it's actually probably one of the problems it has is often the formal mechanisms aren't great. Totally, totally. I think there's there's really two things there, isn't there? There's there's two kind of camps that have really defined, I think, the post Cold War left. And you can school me on my history when I get it wrong, Ben. You know, essentially you have, as as you've described, there's a there's the non-parliamentarist left, you know, based in broadly speaking, social movements, various socialist groupsicles, um, anarchist cells, this kind of thing, like and the other. Sometimes they find themselves in the trade union movement, universities, various places, who have a a frankly hostile um view of the ALP. And look, that's not without reason. You know there are reasons for for that among some sections of of, of the left, and and it, and it's worth recognising that. But it comes with a a very blinkered idea of how change happens, um, a complete lack of any any trust or faith that any change can occur in the ALP, and as you say, a completely um, misguided idea of, of how the ALP actually operates. On the other side of that, you have a culture in the Labor Party. And it is it is it is just as much so on the left of the Labor Party as it is in the right and the and the independents, um, which is you know hostile to movement politics, to extra parliamentary activism. You can see it in the in the recent South Australian um, you know changes to protest laws. There is a a a view that um, 
adult mature politics can only be done through a top-down kind of verticalist way of politics where everyone plays their part and it's all managed and 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 carved up through the parliamentary labor party and i've said this previously on on one of the, on one of our, uh, one of your pods here ben um that both of those ecologies camps what are tendencies have failed right they've completely failed um the left is small it's impotent um, maybe there is comfort in being impotent because you don't have to be challenged on the fact that you, um, that we have really stuffed up the last 40 years. You know, you look at the challenges that are growing and growing and growing that are, that are significantly threatening the basis of our civilization. And you, you have to be honest with ourselves that neither, neither um, way of doing things has, has worked. Um, and it really is past time that people look at all fronts of the class war and as Jeremy Gilbert, the UK culture and political theorist says, um, the Labour Party, he's referring to the UK Labour Party, but it's certainly relevant here, is a front in the class war. And if you treat it as such, then you have to work out how to engage in it. Now, that's not to say that everyone has to, you know, dump what they're doing and join the ALP. That's crazy. We need people across the spectrum. We need people everywhere all at once, you know, <laughs> fighting the battles that, that need to be fought. But what we do need is is to find a way of building a, a more strategic alliance between socialists and progressives in the ALP and radicals outside of the parliamentary ring of the ALP, including the Greens, so that we are, as best we can, pushing in the same direction. Um, because otherwise, um, you're going to have a, a, a government, a Labor government, with its horizons lowered that is pushed from all sides, predominantly by organised capital and the establishment, because they've got all the guns and the money. And you, I mean, for example, we're seeing it now. We're seeing it now. You know, the government got through what I would say is a modest progressive step in industrial relations reform. And we see in the news that BHP and other companies are lining up multi-million dollar advertising campaign to smash them, right? You don't hear about you know, where is the defense of those, you know, very significant changes? Because if we don't defend them and they get crunched uh, in a term or two's time, then, you know, the best vehicle for change in Australia, the labor movement, will continue to be fighting with one arm and one leg time behind us back. You know, we really need to, to, to acknowledge and defend the incremental changes that occur you know, we need to provide cover for them so they're getting better, but we also need to be pushing. And you can't do that without some kind of um, understanding, respect and, and open-mindedness to people's different ways of trying to achieve change. Absolutely. Now, there was a Brazilian writer we were talking about, I think it was probably the last time we had you on the show. Yeah, man. Rodrigo Nunez. That's right. Yeah. Now, his book, can you remember the name of it? Yeah, it's called Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal. Yeah, it's a theory of political organisation. And what I took from listening to him uh, on another podcast with um, Navarro Media and discussions I've had with you is it's that idea of providing linkages, cross-promotion, and, I mean, effectively solidarity in a real basic sort of way. It's like, yeah, we know what the big problems are. Uh, rather than getting so obsessed with who we are and our, our, our identity, that we actually just need to make linkages and promote each other really is, is kind of, you know, he talks about an ecology is my understanding. You, when you've got a disparate forces that building a, a cross, you know, having an ecology of cross um, fertilization means that in the longer term, you're going to have a more healthy and robust 
civil society. Like it's it's very you know what I mean theory wise, it's very Gramsci in terms of the the, the Marxist theorist Antonio Gramsci. But it's it's basically going back to this idea that like absolutely you know you can have the groups of ideas that you're organized you, you believe in and the like but at the end of the day you need to go and work with other people yeah we have to be unsentimental i think yeah right like we have to be unsentimental about who we work with and, and and what we're trying to achieve and that requires having a strategic plan some thinking around what you want to do and how you want to achieve it and if you if you're unsentimental and you're organized and you have a plan then um Really, you you should be able to engage in whatever forum you think is necessary to to make change happen, build relationships, yeah, and 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 work through it. Um, I highly recommend his book. It is an attempt at pulling together a modern theory of political organisation. So it is um, it does go much deeper than than the kinds of than the, the kinds of things we're talking about today. But certainly, it, its relevance can't be, I think, under understated. Yeah, in in helping us try and think through where we failed, the barriers we create for ourselves um, and how we can overcome them. And I guess that leads me to the, the extra parliamentary part, which is, which is missing at the moment in Australia, is I guess we've had 12 months now and in terms of actually pointing to activism on the streets and the like or in the workplaces, you, you're kind of left there scratching your head. Like my reading of it is there's not much going on. There's been a lot of waiting around I guess waiting on some big decisions being made by the PLP, for example. But I, I think what I really want to emphasize here is this idea like you can chew, you know, you can walk with, you need to walk with two legs. Yeah. It's not just about like if labor is one front of the struggle, the other front is actually on the streets, in the workplace, like, you know, and combining those two things, you can walk and we can all walk and we can also chew gum as well, is, is, is my take on it. There's, there's no idea that, like, this idea that we need to, a purity sort of, you know, between social movements and the, um, the grown-ups who participate and go into a, a monthly branch meeting is kind of, kind of ridiculous. And, and I would put it to people on, on the, I guess, the, who inside the Labor Party as well as those, those, those without is that we've had, there's a pretty big failing going on at the moment where we've got a cost of living crisis, we've got a climate crisis, we've got the gaps between the, the rich and the poor, we've got a lot of outrage about stage three tax cuts, for example. There's massive opportunities for the, for the left to actually um, galvanise and get some support. Well, how are you going to do that, guys? Because like it's pretty apparent to me that Twitter is not it. Um, social media is not it. Social media is only really useful in terms of a signpost, yeah? It's a tool, right? Yeah. It's a tool. Yeah, you know, I think I think well, let's let's take a step back and see who has been effective in this last year. Yep. What movement or or yeah or force political force has has actually been effective and has chalked up a bunch of wins, and it's the women's movement, right? It's it's feminists in Australia have been, I think, the uh, the most effective political force in the last twelve months. I think the trade union movement has gotten there um, some wins that they that they that they demanded and, and worked hard towards. Um, but really, I think the the unsung uh, heroes on the left um, is the women's movement. And it's to me, it doesn't seem like a classic nineteen seventies liberation movement these days. It seems to be a much more um, networked, organised, you know, group and, and organisations and, and individuals who have played the system effectively to get good outcomes in, in a relatively short amount of time. There are certainly lessons there. You know, you can see it with the campaigns to change and, and get rid of parents next as one great example of a, a fantastic activist um, whose name unfortunately escapes me at the moment, so I apologise for that, was able to, you know, build a 
a, a base of support in the community of, of family of single parents who are being absolutely screwed over by this system, who had an effective uh, campaign um, through the parliament, through the media. You know, she used brick bats and bouquets to get to get a change. Um, and I think like that is a wonderful example of the kind of intervention that people on the left can make, noting our our lack of institutional power noting how uh, fragmented we are i just think that, that at, at this point in time it's worth looking at, at who's who's doing well as a, including as well as those who you know who aren't doing so well and and let's see if we can learn some lessons yeah and it's the how they're doing it which is different so i mean i think uh, yeah i hadn't actually thought about that but you are dead right um that has been really interesting in terms of the the networking example that's been going on many years now i mean look Great. I mean, look, this the cynic, there would be a Marxist argument basically saying, oh, well, you're just talking about middle-class white-collar professionals. And then I think that it completely misses the point. And particularly when we're talking about uh, the significant inroad made into actually getting rid of this neoliberal BS about mutual obligation. Um, That's right. You know, yeah. smashing of, of people for the, you know, having the, the, um, the, the hide to be poor and single. Yep. Yep. So look, it, it is significant, and and I guess the other thing, like to pull pull it apart, like in terms of the the union win, uh, I mentioned aged care before, aged care and disability. Now, if you think about it, two of the largest and fastest growing unions in this country, uh, the health services union and its different manifestations, uh, state by state, who, um, as well as the Australian uh, Nurses and Midwifery Federation, Midwifery Federation. Uh, nationally, and you throw in some growth as well for the what is the United Workers Union, or what used to be called the Miscellaneous Workers Union, and the teachers as well. Yeah, and yeah, and the teachers as well. We've got a whole lot of uh, industries that are normally feminised in terms of the number of women involved, and has been like those campaigns. They're not like what we often see. Sadly, is peak union groups run these sort of community campaigns where. It's basically third-party campaigning, like oh, things are bad. Just vote for these civil things. society yeah. style. Yeah, yeah. These these campaigns, primarily, like they're not all perfect. They're definitely, but however, they are campaigns that were they'd always start out. We were organising the workplace. Um, the issues were always talked about in those workplaces, and they were being talked about in the sense of as to why people should actually join the union. Because it's very much around building workplace power before then going. Okay, we're going to go and hand out leaflets at the local market. Yeah. Or we're going to, you know, eventually finding themselves putting, you know, um, rank and file members going out to hand out at, on voting days. That's an example as to how to do it. And, you know, like kudos to them for, for pulling that off. Because a lot of other unions that are, they don't build campaigns in, in actually in the workplace. They play lip service to it. They might run an information session, but they're so obsessed with being top down about controlling it that they don't do it. So I guess there's an example there. I'd also look like, like nods to like when there's good activism, You, I, I think we should acknowledge it. Like, I think the Unemployed uh, Workers Union, Australian Unemployed Workers Union, now there's problems with that group or whatever. I don't want to go in a big way, but I was glad to see a bunch of activists actually organised a protest out the front of Anthony's, Anthony Albanese's electorate office. I thought, that's good. That's great. That's corporeal. That's real. You got some attention. Like, that's that's excellent. That's more effective than, you know, arguably yeah, that complements the signposting they have on social media. But I'm not inflating it. That's, I think there's examples there where a bunch of activists can actually, you can pick a target of decision makers, you can lobby them, you can put pressure on them, and we don't have to be nasty and psychologically try to damage each other in a, a furial space, yeah? 
Well, I mean, that is certainly something that the AUW have been accused of previously, and I try to avoid all that shit on Twitter, so uh, I don't want to get involved in any of that rubbish. Um, I would say, though, that you know, on the, on the job seeker payment thing issue, and, and I'll admit I was uh, wrong um, to, to criticise this when it happened too, but the move by um, Senator David Pocock, the new ACT Senator for Rugby Players um, and posh people, to get a committee set up to to review the the, the welfare payments um, every year, provided that space, right? And where more um, fringe groups or more radical groups like the AUW could could step in and, and and push in the way that they do, and I do have some significant issues with their style of campaigning. I think that they are extremely purist um, and puerile, and I think that their their effectiveness is limited as a result of that. But and they were hypercritical of what of what Senator Pocock did as well. But if it wasn't for what he did, that space wouldn't have opened, um, and that opportunity wouldn't have been able to be. Um, wouldn't have been taken up. So kudos to him for for playing that game and and for and for making it happen. It's worth noting though there are a number of times that the that the the prime minister and other ministers have, have given speeches or made statements on a range of issues where they have basically subtly, probably too subtly, have laid the challenge down to people to push them to go harder. And I think welfare reform is one of them. Mm. Um, is certainly go and have a look, go and look at the speeches where they do make statements and they say that. This is the change we can make now, but we'd like to go further effectively. It might not be exactly the words that they use. And I think people need to pick that ball up and run with it instead of just saying what you've done is shit, therefore you're shit and you'll always be shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, Spot on. I, I think there's that history there, the, the key activism during the Keating period, which people have completely, well, they weren't around for it. A lot of these younger people, they, they don't remember it. Which that activism in the in the early nine late eighties early nineties laid the foundation for a lot of the opposition that meant that John Howard well he eventually won a whole lot of stuff but there was very much a, a very strong rearguard action being fought by uh, X generation young people around basically opposing neoliberal sort of changes and you know they didn't get it all their own way it was a very quite a gradual process got worse and worse over time but they didn't get to do a John Hewson. Uh, if John Houston had a one in '93, but that's one point. The other one is I'm very happy to hear on Doe Capital that that Matt Matt's uh, like likes my hero po- Pocock. Well, no, he doesn't like him, but um, you know, admits there that uh, you know that's that's pretty good. That's very big of you, mate. Better than Zed, mate. Let's well, be yeah, he's better than Zed, but I mean, you know, keep just the, just to, just to say it's Ella Buckland who was the campaigner, the sole parent who who got the parents' next campaign going, and we're talking about social media. By her use of social media to gather stories and to to bring people together who are suffering under parents' neck is actually a really good way of using mm. social media. It's a tool. It's not a megaphone. It's not effective at shifting people, but it's a really good place to collect people mm. together uh, and and organise them for collective struggle. The come at me thing. I, I like that you picked up on that. There, I think you did set right. Um, I think the plebiscites of the world and the Albanese's of the world probably in their own way they they sort of think. This is as far as we can go, and we're only going to go this far because there's not enough pressure for them to go further than they are. Like I think that signal there, like for for the left in general, or your inside or outside Labor in general, is well increase your activism, increase your activity. Whether it, and I think ta- like the strategy there needs to be overarching what we we're talking about before about finding opportunities to work with other people 
around key issues. And I, I wanna get nail into tactics. And then the tactics bit is, if you have a strategy that is open and uh, collaborative, look at your tactics as well. They can also do the same thing. I'd go for the decision makers, not going for poor punters that would more likely be sympathetic or would support what you're doing. Yeah, totally. And I think I think really the word that you've hit on there is strategy. And too often we don't really have strategy. And I mean, it's easy for you and I to sit here and, and say that, but you know, we'll, we can eat our cake and, and we can, yeah, we can be cake eaters. So why not? Um, it's a podcast. We can say what we like. Um, look, I think, I think that, you know, the, the strategic necessity there is to build alliances and to build as big a set of alliances to build power as possible. And when I say that, I mean, think about who are the people that this government needs to rely on for its future success. Right, who are at risk of being peeled away? You can see the Greens right now are going super hard for renters because a third of Australians rent. Right, you combine that with progressive um, inner city types, people who are concerned about climate change, and that starts to look like you know a, a voter base of more than the twelve and a half they get now. We're looking more at 17 percent, you know, and then on and on it goes from there. So take a leaf out of that book. You know, who are you going to form alliances with? They're going to put maximum, provide maximum pressure and also cover for the government to move where where we want them to move. But just ad hominem tactical um, approaches, um, tactics are important, but they've got to be part of a strategy. But a solely, a solely tactical approach is, is, is a recipe for defeat. Well, I guess we're, we're covered a, covering a lot here today, mate. So... Not that we're telling people what to do, but I guess this is kind of like uh, having that just that discussion about getting an idea of like, I guess what's been frustrating us both is in our own experience and opinions, like just getting quite a bit frustrated with the discourse, with the discussions that's going on, and also the complete lack of, of activism. Um, like there's very, very few examples of things going on. Uh, a lot of these, like some of the best examples we've got are things that have actually taken years to mature and happen. Get that. But what I guess the key point I really want to express there is like if you don't organize and you don't organize a way in a way that is actually going to bring people with you and that strategy there of being open and accessible, um, you're going to lose. And, you know, you can scream into the ether as much as you want, but you're not, not wouldn't have changed anything. Yeah, I guess that's that's my sort of um, thought on that. Is there anything else you want to add on, add, add on to this one? No, I think that pretty much covers that point off, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think... Um... Um, it's it's always fraught trying to tell cremains to suck eggs. Usually, you get the egg boat thrown back in your face, um, and that's fine. But I just I just want to reiterate the fact that you know the the ways and means that the left is in the broadest sense of the term, right? Let's be as broad as possible because we want to be as big as possible. Has failed, has failed, and there are many reasons for that. But I think one is is this. Um, this kind of retreating to our corners um, and finding comfort in impotency. So just to finish up on, uh, I would say, just to pick up from where we started, uh, the four-day week is a movement that's kicking off well and truly around the world. We've had the incredible run in the United Kingdom. It was the largest ever sort of test of the idea of it. Uh, and I know that like in a practical example, as I was mentioning, like it's very small numbers of comrades have actually been taking up this 
quite a serious policy proposal and taking it to Labor sub-branches or the Commons, and also inspired by the owner, taking it to the Greens. And I, I think it's an example there in terms of like that, that that parliamentary reformist activity. That's something practical people can do. And it just shows that like if you're involved in organisations, this is a classic example of a something that affects everyone that you can build alliances with people. And we're talking about the alliances between people who don't get enough work to live and we're talking about the alliance with people who currently work too much. Um, those are, are practical things there. And also means that um, it forces some of the actors that don't, aren't interested in, in it. And we've had a lot of opposition from uh, internally from trade union officials. Well, you know, not lots, but enough to sort of like, oh, well, that's terribly nice, but, uh, you know, it's not a priority. It's all too hard. Prove us, prove us otherwise, yeah? My take on it is like, that is an example of how you can actually, as a bunch of activists, like get together, get some clear ideas, go and take something, and you can do that in Labor, you can do that in the Greens, you know, do it. Or the next thing is like the other thing is like forming groups to campaign around around the issue, mm. or whether it's like you know, I, I think with the Job Seeker and the like. Seriously, there are there are Liberal MP offices area, there are Labor MP offices area. I mean, personally, like I think you know, Andrew Lee is well and truly um, due a visit from uh, angry. Labor Party supporters who are quite disgusted with the fact that he um, won't, won't support things. Or, or um, Mr. Our Man Out and Bean, who, um, what does he do? I, I, I don't know. Um, that's Those are the sort of questions there. ACT conference is coming, on, uh, coming along, and you're then sort of left scratching your head as to what is it about the federal PLP representatives that we send along with a very nice platform from uh, the ACT members who then think that's an option. You know, it's completely optional what actually members think in the ACT uh, because I'm all right, Jack. So but I'm just putting that out there. That should be put on notice. And to put them on notice actually requires activism. Uh, you can do it internally in the Labor Party, but you also get out there and go and knock on the door. What are you going to do, Andrew, to actually, now that you've got your, your special promotion there, uh, what is it, assister, you know, the assisting um, uh, Tony Burke? That's terribly interesting. Uh, our academic on a sabbatical has finally got another nod. That's great. Um, but actually, in terms of what did he do to actually back up and back in the platform of ACT Labor members when it came to JobSeeker, well, he did bugger all, as opposed to Alicia Payne, who actually did sign that letter from the Australian Council of Social Services, who got a lot of civil society actors there, including seven MPs, to sign a letter saying, hey, let's raise JobSeeker to Henderson poverty line. Like, that is significant, and I think that 17 shows an example of, like, when there's pressure, we could do a lot. But if there's actually pressure applied to the streets and you actually go and confront those decision makers in a very de democratic, peaceful way, of course, we can put more pressure on them. Because at the moment, they just think they're in a job for life. Well, you can see there where the opportunities for alliance banking is, right? I also recall just taking a few steps back as the ACT was progressing to setting up, um, to forming, and then achieving its goal of, of, of getting to 100% renewable um, electricity for the Territory, that 350.org, the climate um, campaign organisation, um, had an ACT uh, organiser who intelligently realised that the ACT branch was a democratic um, and open branch of the ALP. And there was an opportunity there to go to the branches, not just meet the, the, the MLAs and the MPs and lobby them. That is, that is something useful, but to actually go to the branches 
to talk to them about what the campaign is that they were running, to ask them to move a motion of support for the campaign and to take it up in the democratic uh, forums of the party. And that was successful. That led to a that led to several branches taking up the campaign. Uh, and pushing it through the party and getting a, a, I can't recall if it was a resolution or a platform change, but certainly um, a successful policy change at the party's conference. And that helped push the party, but also helped show the party that there was community and party support for taking this vital action. That is just one example um, of, of what you can do if you have an open mind um, and you want to engage constructively in, in, in building alliances and, and making change wherever you think it's possible. I guess lastly, look, if you're interested in how people fought against the Hawk, well, I guess I guess the Keating period, the period of the 90s, recommend going back and having a listen to an earlier episode of Dole Capital, uh, where there's extensive talk about primarily talking about how socialists were operating and how activists, broadly activists, were operating at the time. But I, I think in there, there's lots of examples of activism, which were, you know, they, they did have an impact. Uh, we didn't have up upfront feed. Like, our study was still with us in 1995, despite the fact that Labor at the time put out white papers to get rid of it. Uh, we still broadly, you know, we still had um, free education for, for quite some time. Uh, the, the upfront fees did not really sort of kick off well into the 2000s, you know. So that's that's all down the activist stuff. So I think there's definitely historical things you can look at and draw some inspiration from. And well, there's what Matt's just pointing out there in terms of the way you actually go and campaign in a political party. Yeah, I mean, just on that on that campaign against the Nelson reforms and the, the implementation of, of upfront fees. I studied briefly at Charles State University in Wagga, and the coalition of um, student groups who ran the campaign against um, the, the introduction of those reforms on that campus was the Jelly Babies, which was the queer collective, and the Federation of Christian University Students, the Evangelicals. They worked together to build student support against these reforms. So, I mean, that is not the perfect example of having an open mind and being constructive um, and, and using alliances uh, to get things done when it's needed, then I don't really know what is. I guess lastly, Matt, um, one thing that you just reminded me though, like that when we look backwards, it's a different time, different context, yeah? And I guess, look, there's frustration of people of my pedigree. They sort of think, why aren't the kids fucking tipping over tables, yeah? Why aren't they sending light to cars? Like seriously, the future of like, I think about my children and I think this is insane. What is going to happen by 2050 is insane. Like, you know, things need to happen. And there's an element that you start, I mean, I find myself going, well, I'm, I'm someone that is not in the position to go and take all those high risks and all the rest of it. Can't do it, right? But what I'm saying is if you've actually got, you know, the, the you've got the means and the like, you've actually got the means to go and organise, people will come and support you if you actually go out there and have a go. That's, that's one of the things I want to get out there. But also there's a different context. Today, we are in a situation where we normally have a progressive um, government in power. We have cross, uh, cross bench in the Senate that wields a lot of power in terms of what the agenda is going to be. Matt, you've already pointed out the, the threats that are there, but I think the key difference that's there, there's an opportunity to actually be a lot more uh, front-footed about what agenda we want to see the Albanese government take, as opposed to what we had in the 90s and the early, you know, for much of the thousands, which were constantly reacting to all the horror of neoliberalism, constantly trying to hold on to things, consciously, you know, trying to defend. There is a chance to offensively take it to neoliberalism. He's failed. And in terms of we're seeing the policy ramifications, like let's say the PwC um, scandals kicking off right now, the market has failed. It's corrupt. It's feudalism. It's wealth redistribution to the top to the others. 
look, yeah, there's an opportunity there to rewin that argument that the state has a role, not only has a role, it has a role to actually empower and benefit working class people and the poor. And that's today's show. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, no, thanks, Ben. It's been fun. And as usual, and look, a lot of the views on this uh, this show are mine, not Matt. You know, look, if you like this show or any other show that you, uh, any of the episodes, you can check out our backlog on Spotify, on uh, all good app um, podcast app providers. Why not subscribe to our show? You can um, subscribe to our Patreon as well if you like. Send us some solidarity dollars if you like, and that uh, definitely helps with new equipment, upgrading what we got, and keeping our uh, our fees paid and running the time. Uh, we're also on the socials. We have uh, we're on Facebook and we're active on Twitter. Trying to actually ditch that a little bit more, but you know, if you want to reach out and get in contact with us about things, uh, or if you want to, you know, you we have a group and that's doing some stuff, we're happy to chat. So. Our social handles are at Dole Capital, D-O-H-K-A-P-I-T-A-L, or our email address is D-O-H-K-A-P-I-T-A-L. That's dolecapital at gmail.com. And thanks there for uh, Matt from coming in from the cold and having a little bit of debrief. (laughs) And we'll speak to you again very soon.